That was a new one and me, that, him, but it was good. Enjoyed that. But we should sing that again sometime. Not today, but sometime. Let's picture the scene. Mary Magdalene, while it was still dark, i.e. between three and six o'clock in the morning, on that first Easter day, returns to the tomb where on the Friday evening she'd watched as Joseph and Nicodemus had anointed Jesus' body with spices in line with Jewish burial customs and laid Jesus' body in the tomb and then rolled the stone across the entrance. Mary Magdalene has traditionally often been equated with Mary of Bethany, the extravagant worshipper who poured out perfume and wept her tears upon the feet of Jesus at a dinner party less than a week before he died. We know for sure she had been set free from multiple demonic strangleholds, and that in her gratitude she became one of the wealthy women who supported Jesus financially. She may well have been thinking back to that day when she had anointed Jesus' body with extravagantly expensive perfume, much to the chagrin of Judas and the other disciples. Mary had kept vigil at the foot of the cross. Now she has to try and take in the horrific reality of Jesus' words after she'd anointed him. As he asked his disciples, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jewish custom dictated a responsibility to mourn at the tomb of the deceased for three days, as the soul of the deceased was thought to be still present during that time. The previous day, being the Sabbath, meant travel restrictions, and so only now does Mary return to the tomb to continue to mourn the loss of Jesus. Mary presumably expected to find the tomb exactly as it had been on Friday night. But horror of horrors, the tomb has been desecrated. Grave robbers had apparently done their worst. She runs to alert Peter and John. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and John go to investigate. Sure enough, Jesus' body was gone. Although the neatly folded grave clothes didn't fit with your typical grave robber approach. Nevertheless, they are not ready to proclaim, Thine be the glory, risen conquering Son. Endless is the victory thou, O death, has won. Angels in bright raiment rolled the stone away, kept the folded grave clothes. Where? thy body lay. Instead, we are told, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. 
Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Mary, however, was going nowhere. Her vigil continued. She stands outside the tomb weeping, seemingly beyond comfort. And then she looks in again and sees through her tears two angels, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus' body had been. A few days ago, Jesus had two criminals crucified either side of him. Mary continues to weep. The pain of her grief is intense. Yet Jesus had wept. He'd wept outside the tomb of Lazarus. He'd grieved over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The angels, quickly followed by Jesus, who she mistakes initially for the gardener, ask, Woman, woman, why are you crying? In asking Mary that question, Jesus gives her the opportunity to tell him exactly why she is crying. The opportunity to be completely honest with him, as we can be with those we are closest to. Now she can even visit his grave for a scrap of solace. Even that's been spoiled. She's been robbed of Jesus. The person who had turned her life around completely has been taken from her. Just as Jesus had experienced feeling that he'd been abandoned by his Father God at Calvary, so Mary experiences similar desolation. Jesus then asks, who is it you're looking for? Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Even if all she can manage to salvage from this nightmare is to repatriate Jesus' corpse and give him a decent burial, she'll do it. She won't give up on him. With this declaration, she hears the voice she thought she'd never hear again. She hears Jesus' distinctive voice say her name. Her name. Mary. The tears evaporate, and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus charges Mary to go and tell the other disciples the news about him. She gladly obeys. I have seen the Lord. Pete Gregg comments, For this commission, Mary Magdalene was recognized by Thomas Aquinas as nothing less than Apostola Apostolorum the apostle to the apostles, the first witness to the resurrection. Mary's life had been transformed utterly by Jesus. This broken woman 
from whom seven demons had been cast, is chosen to become their trusted forerunner, the earliest recipient of the good news that Jesus Christ is alive. Let's leave Mary for now and join someone else who heard the voice of the risen Jesus. Call him by name. There'd be no graveside vigil for him. Crucifixion was the least Jesus deserved, and he committed himself to stamping out Jesus' upstart band of rebels come heretics. He was witchfinder general-in-chief. Jesus literally stops him in his tracks. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. Saul's arrival in Damascus is very different from what he had planned. He has now been temporarily blinded and has to be led by his traveling companions helplessly to the city. Three days later, Ananias visits Saul. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Saul, a.k.a. Paul, met the risen Christ on the Damascus road and his life was never the same again. In Christ, he was raised to new life. The old had gone, the new had come. The whole direction and purpose of his life had changed. He grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Instead of zealously persecuting followers of Jesus, followers of the way, as the early Christians were called, so Paul becomes a passionate follower of the way. He now knows the Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He can write later to the Philippians, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. As he has grown in Christ, so he more and more sees the bigger picture, the eternal picture. As he ministers, as he preaches the gospel, so he becomes the persecuted. As various interest groups see him, see Christ and his kingdom as a threat to their current interests, their culture, their lifestyle, and so they gather their forces to oppose the gospel. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and in turn, all believers as he still does today. 
My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they truly may be sanctified. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. It should be hugely encouraging to us that Jesus prays for us, but it is also salutary to know as we ask today, when will my prayers be answered, that the last part of Jesus' prayer, that all of them may be one, has clearly not yet been answered. By the time Paul writes his second letter to the church at Corinth, his passion to preach the gospel is undimmed. But if he ever had a honeymoon period that is well and truly over, we don't know precisely the nature of the opposition he and his companions had faced, but he is explicit in emphasizing just how intense were the forces ranged against them. They were under great pressure, far beyond their ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt under a sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Paul, is, who is clearly a strong personality, is brought to his knees and discovers, if he didn't know before, that trusting in his own strength, his own natural abilities, his force of personality, etc., will not be enough to sustain him. Abraham Lincoln commented, I have often been driven to my knees in prayer because I had nowhere else to go. You may be in that place just now. Pete Gregg, the author of God and Mute, which this series is based on, and which was inspired by his wife Sammy, who has struggled and continues to struggle and live with debilitating illness for over 20 years, writes, when my prayers don't work, I easily default to despair, anger, or doubt. Although I believe that God can handle my hang-ups, the truth is that there is only temporary comfort in anger and no hope whatsoever in doubt. One morning, I asked Sammy if she ever doubted God's existence or his power to intervene. She was back in hospital after a particularly vicious epileptic attack. It was really more of a confession on my part than a question for her. 
But without hesitation, Sammy replied, No, I never doubt God these days, Pete. Pausing, she examined my face with a mixture of affection and reproach. How can I doubt God? She continued more softly. God is all I've got. It's amazing to me that the shock of Sammy's diagnosis never caused her to struggle with the fundamentals of her faith. As she prepared for surgery, enduring such inner turmoil, Sammy's belief in God's existence, love and power proved resolute. In fact, her belief grew stronger in spite of such profound disappointment and unanswered prayer. She understood better than me that her hope in the face of suffering is not to reject God, but to trust him even more. Paul concurs. God who raises the dead has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Isaiah proclaims God's comfort. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Paul too proclaims, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Let's return to later on on that first Easter day and join the folks on the Mayor's Road in Luke 24 a passage which inspired the well-known hymn, Abide With Me, Fast Falls the Eventide, which is, unsurprisingly, a particular favourite of Stephen. The knights are drawing in Preston. <laughs> Cleopas, and more than likely his wife Mary, and not Mary Magdalene, are heading home from Jerusalem, walking the seven miles to Emmaus. Their mood is more in tune with the confusion that darkness brings in the absence of any light to help us see anything clearly in the dark. As they discuss the events of the past weekend and its seemingly tragic, hopeless conclusion, Jesus comes alongside. And like Mary earlier, they don't recognize him. 
Likewise, Jesus has questions for them as he did for Mary. Questions to help them target their confusion and begin to make sense of and interpret those events and understand those events in a new light. What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth. They rhyme off what they thought they knew about Jesus, concluding sadly, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Jesus, of course, had come to redeem Israel, and more than Israel. They relate the early morning Easter day experience of Mary Magdalene and the other women, but note that although Peter and John had seen the empty tomb, they did not see Jesus. Jesus rebukes them and begins to explain the true significance and necessity of his crucifixion and resurrection. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Leon Morris comments, Jesus began a systematic Bible study. Moses and all the prophets formed the starting point, but he also went on to the things that referred to him in all the scriptures. The picture we get is of the Old Testament as pointing to Jesus in all its parts. Luke gives no indication of which passages the Lord chose, but he makes it clear that the whole Old Testament was involved. We should perhaps understand this not as a selection of proof texts, but rather as showing that throughout the Old Testament, a consistent divine purpose is worked out. A purpose that in the end meant and must mean the cross. The terribleness of sin is found throughout the Old Testament, and so is the deep, deep love of God. In the end, this combination made Calvary inevitable. The two had wrong ideas of what the Old Testament taught, and thus they had wrong ideas about the cross. Again, Pete Gregg notes that Jesus addresses their confusion and notes, maybe your disappointments in prayer have left you confused like that earnest couple on the road to Emmaus. Don't run away from your questions. Allow Jesus to explain the scriptures to you by his spirit. He wants to help you make sense of what you're going through. Study and think. Discuss these matters with friends. Perhaps as you talk 
there will be moments when you realize that Jesus has joined the conversation just as he did on the road to Emmaus. No wonder it's getting dark by the time Jesus had unpacked the Bible as it was on that first Easter day. They invite Jesus to stay with them for the night and eat with them, for traveling after dark could be dangerous with robbers or wild animals to contend with. But note, they invited Jesus. Don't skip over that. To know Jesus, you must invite him into your life. You won't knock the door in and gate crash your life. The invitation is yours to make. And know also, he will always gladly accept. Only as they eat do they recognize that Jesus has been journeying with them. The meal is left unfinished. And despite the darkness, they hot-footed back to Jerusalem and report to the eleven disciples what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Pete Gregg concludes his book, God on Mute, as follows. When I wake at night and look at Sammy sleeping quietly next to me, I must face the possibility that though we continue to pray with all our hearts for the completion of her healing, it may never happen. She may suffer from epilepsy for the rest of her life. Worse still, the tumor could even grow back. But whether the future brings miraculous answers to prayer or ongoing suffering and silence, nothing can take away the things God has taught us through Sammy's illness. As the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Reluctantly, I acknowledge that though inwardly we are wasting away, sorry, that though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And if the Lord has conspired to bring a little hope to your life through a chronic illness and a chronic curd like me, then to him be all the glory. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves 
receive from God. Amen.